Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's Monday, the 23rd of October, 2023. I'm Emma Hogan, The Economist's America's Editor. Welcome to Editor's Picks, where you can hear three highlights from the audio edition of The Economist. This week, we grappled with how profoundly the war between Israel and Hamas will shake the Middle East and America. Much can and will go wrong in the weeks ahead. Our cover story argues that President Joe Biden is the only leader who has a hope of pulling the Middle East back from the brink of a bigger catastrophe. Next, we turn to Poland, where the recent election ousted the right-wing Law and Justice Party's majority. Amid the rise of liberal governments in Europe, Poland's victory offers a lesson in how to push back on populism. And finally, we reveal the real bedbug resurgence hidden beneath the hysteria on social media. Before we begin, a quick reminder that Economist Podcast Plus, our new subscriber service, begins tomorrow on October 24th. If you haven't yet signed up, there's still time. Our half-price offer has been extended to the end of October. That means you can get access to all the shows on our award-winning network for just $2, £2 or €2 a month. The link to sign up is in the show notes or just search for Economist Podcasts. First up, why only America can save Israel and Gaza from a greater catastrophe. How rapidly things fall apart. The deadly blast in Gaza at Ali Arab Hospital on the evening of October 17th killed many Palestinians who were taking shelter. Despite strong evidence that their deaths were caused by the failure of a Palestinian rocket laden with fuel, Arab countries rushed to condemn Israel. Hezbollah, a heavily armed Lebanese militia, is lurching closer to outright war with Israel. Bridges built painstakingly between Israel and its Arab neighbours lie in ruins. How fragile are the forces trying to hold things together? Fifteen hours after the blast, President Joe Biden landed in Israel an old man with the weight of the world on his shoulders. Mr Biden's diplomacy is a geopolitical moment. As well as signalling grief and support for Israel, it brings into focus how much this crisis matters to the Middle East and to America. For the past half century, the United States has been the only country willing and able to bring any kind of order to the region. Regardless of the many failures of American policy there, including in Iraq and Syria, Mr Biden and his Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, have once again taken up that burden. Death and disease hang over Gaza. The poison is spreading across the Arab world. 
they do not have long. The imminent danger is on that second front in the north of Israel. The death toll at Ali Arab means that Hezbollah and its Iranian sponsors risk losing face if they fail to avenge lost Palestinian lives. Hezbollah will now also have strong backing in the Arab world if it attacks. If Israel concludes war is inevitable, it may strike first. America has tasked two aircraft carriers with deterring Hezbollah and Iran from opening a second front. If they defy it, it should use them for a show of force. A second danger is of Arab-Israeli relations being put back decades. Amid Israel's unprecedented bombing, Arabs remember previous wars in which Israel hit schools and hospitals. Israel has imposed a total siege of Gaza. Its president has said all Gazans share responsibility. Despite Israel's excesses, Arab leaders could have called for calm and for an independent investigation of the hospital blast. What looks like the mass killing of Palestinians by Palestinians ought to have redoubled their efforts to safeguard Gaza's civilians and spurred them on to create a regional plan for a better Palestinian future. Instead, the blast has deepened hatred and grievances. In words that cannot easily be taken back, Israel's Arab partners heaped blame upon the Jewish state. Jordan immediately cancelled a summit between Mr. Biden and Arab leaders that had been the best hope for regional diplomacy. Egypt is more resolved than ever to keep temporary refugees out of the Sinai, partly for fear of being seen to abet Israel in what Palestinians worry is a plan to empty Gaza permanently. This is a lamentable failure of leadership, with profound regional and global implications. Most Arab governments loathe Hamas and its backer, Iran. Countries like the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia need stability and benefit from good relations with Israel. However, they are so wary of testing their citizens' anger with the truth about the rocket's origin that they have chosen to sabotage their people's long-term interests. For Iran, that looks like victory. For years, it has had a strategy of financing, arming and training proxies like Hamas and Hezbollah. It calculates that violence and mayhem weaken Israel and discredit Arab governments. If the sight of America fighting Hezbollah alongside Israel leads to a rupture of Mr. Biden's relations with the Arab world, an exultant Iran will have built the foundations for its own regional dominance. Russia and China are winning too. There is a perception in the global south that this complex story is actually a simple one of oppressed Palestinians and Israeli colonisers. China and Russia will exploit this caricature to argue that America is revealing its true contempt for brown-skinned people in Gaza and its hypocrisy over human rights and war crimes, just as they claim it did by supposedly provoking a war in Ukraine. What can Mr Biden do? His analysis must start with the need for peace between the Palestinians and Israelis and a recognition that there can be none 
for as long as Hamas governs Gaza, not after it has demonstrated that it puts due hatred before any other goal. Gaza City is honeycombed by tunnels. Destroying Hamas's ability to wage war therefore requires a ground offensive. Everything follows from the prosecution of that ground war. The tragedy of Ali Arab validates the cynical calculation that Palestinian casualties help Hamas by undermining support for Israel. The Israeli army needs to be seen to spare civilians, not least because it needs time to destroy Hamas's tunnels. Gaza is on the brink. Poor sanitation threatens epidemic disease. Israel has at last agreed that some aid can cross into Gaza. Much more will be needed. If Egypt continues to bar refugees, Israel should go further by creating havens on its own territory in the Negev, supervised by UN agencies. It is also vital to spell out what comes after the invasion. Israel needs to show that its fight is with the terrorists, not the people of Gaza. It should pledge a new beginning after the war, with a programme of rebuilding and the promise that it will not strangle Gaza's economy. It should support a new Palestinian constitution and new elected leaders. All this would be easier under a new Israeli government voted in when the war is done. Even if Mr Biden can persuade Israel to take these steps, that leaves the hardest question of all. How to provide security in post-Hamas Gaza? Israel cannot occupy the enclave permanently. That idea was rightly abandoned in 2005. An international commitment is therefore needed. Because it is not clear who would join this, Mr Biden should start building a coalition now. The more Israel shows the Arab world that it is serious about protecting civilians and planning for the day after, the more likely Arab leaders are to play their part. This is a tall order. Much can and will go wrong. Ordinary Arabs' ingrained anti-Zionism will gnaw at their leaders' willingness to help. But the alternative is the decay that feeds scavenger states like Iran and Russia. Mr Biden is the only leader who can pull things back together. If he fails and the security of the Middle East crumbles, it will be a catastrophe for America too. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Editor's Picks from The Economist. Next, a lesson from Poland on pushing back on populism. Liberals do not get much to cheer them up these days, but the news from Warsaw this week qualifies. Confounding fears that many disenchanted voters might simply stay at home, 
Polls turned out in record numbers on October 15th to vote down the populist nationalist Law and Justice, or Peace Party, that has run the country for the past eight years. They gave what looks like a solid mandate for government to an opposition alliance headed by Donald Tusk, a former prime minister and a former head of the European Council to boot. The alliance won 248 seats in the 460-member Same or Lower House of Parliament and 66 of 100 seats in the Senate, the weaker upper house. Following a run of successes for illiberal populists in Hungary and Italy last year and in Turkey in May, not to mention a sharp recent rise in popularity for Germany's AFD, the result is a relief. To understand why it is such good news, consider what would have happened if peace had managed to stay on. Four more years of peace would have meant three kinds of problems. First, peace would have continued its creeping capture of the country's supposedly independent institutions, such as the judiciary. It has installed its own hand-picked judges in senior positions, in particular taking over all 15 slots in Poland's Constitutional Tribunal, the country's most important court, since it can strike down laws it deems unconstitutional, as well as in a council that vets all lower judges. It has turned state broadcasters into megaphones for peace propaganda. It has deployed its people to lead state-run industrial enterprises, such as Orlin, an oil company, which conveniently slashed the price of fuel ahead of the election. It has been building a patronage system whereby even humble government jobs in towns it controls depend on supporting, or at least not criticising, the ruling party. There would, second, have been reason to fear a continuation and perhaps a deepening of PC's illiberal domestic agenda. Its judges have made abortion illegal except in cases of rape or incest, or to protect the life or health of the mother, and it started rewriting textbooks to make them more patriotic. Third, a re-emboldened peace would have continued in its combative stance towards the EU, where it often teams up with Viktor Orban's government in Hungary, a populist alliance that was strengthened by the recent return to power of Robert Fitzo in Slovakia, The Central Europeans have been hostile to schemes to share responsibility for dealing with illegal migration and have backed each other in disputes with Brussels over the rule of law, which the populists tend to flout. Most alarming, given its hitherto excellent record of supporting Ukraine, the peace government has recently started to play politics with the war, blocking the import of grain from its neighbour in defiance of EU rules. Much can still go wrong. The opposition agreed to form a government if it won, but there is no guarantee that this will proceed smoothly. The alliance consists of nine parties whose agendas run from radical left to centre-right. And as Prime Minister, Mr Tusk will encounter many obstacles, starting with the President, Andrei Duda, who, though nominally independent, is a peace ally. Mr. Duda can veto all legislation, and the opposition will not have the votes to override him. Mr. Tusk will also bump up against the peace-stacked 
Constitutional Tribunal. Its judges are appointed for nine-year terms. Short of changing the Constitution, there will be no easy way to get rid of them, so Mr Tusk may find his bills struck down. Winkling out pieces judges from lower courts will be tricky too, and would invite the same criticisms that liberals used to make of peace. Mr. Tusk will be able to count on goodwill from Europe, but this is no panacea. Some 35 billion euros, that's 37 billion dollars, of Covid recovery funds owed to Poland, and even more from the regular budget, are blocked because of the row over the rule of law. The European Commission would be happy to unblock it, but first, the Poles must meet the conditions it has laid down. These obstacles are exactly why creeping authoritarianism, peace or Orban style is so dangerous. Turning it around will be hard, but at least a start can now be made and opposition parties around Europe and the world can see that populists can be beaten. And finally, the rise of bedbugs. To Ernest Hemingway, Paris was a movable feast. To a bedbug, so are Parisians. In videos on social media, the seats of the city's metro are seen swarming with bedbugs, tiny insects no bigger than an apple pip, which feed on human blood. The health risk from bedbugs is minor, itchy bites and a small risk of allergies and secondary infections. As the present panic suggests, the bigger impact tends to be psychological, says Clive Bowes, an entomologist and pest control consultant. Mosquitoes, leeches and other parasites are unpleasant, but do not colonise your home. If a traveller brings bedbugs back from their holidays, they can start an infestation that can be very difficult to shift. Schadenfreude among the non-French is unwise. The story is not so much one of bad hygiene and dirty trains as it is another cautionary tale of globalisation, climate change and evolutionary biology. Warm cities provide ideal environments for bedbugs. Cheap travel helps them spread. And after decades of widespread use, the chemical insecticides used to kill them are losing their power. Bedbugs are resurgent everywhere. A decade ago, New York went through a similar panic to Paris's today. Figures from Switzerland's Pest Advisory Service, which maintains one of the few long-term data sets about the insects, show that in the decade 2005, bedbug complaints in Zurich numbered around 20 a year. A decade later, they had sextupled. Numbers fell during COVID-19 lockdowns, but they have risen since. There won't be a city without bedbugs, says Mr Bowes. Humans probably acquired bedbugs with their first addresses. DNA analysis suggests that the pests are descended from parasites that prey on bats, with which humans shared caves, and on birds, which may have nested in early thatched roofs. In evolutionary terms, that makes bedbugs a comparatively recent affliction. That may explain the one bit of good news about them. Mosquitoes spread malaria, dengue fever and yellow fever, but no human pathogen is known to use bedbugs as a vector, perhaps because there has not been time for one to evolve the ability. 
The insects thrive in warm environments with plenty of dark places to hide. Cities and crowded blocks of flats are ideal. The bugs shelter in the crannies of furniture, in mattress seams, or in cracks in walls, coming out to feed at night. Warm, centrally heated homes accelerate their life cycles, making the problem worse, as does a warming climate. The introduction and widespread use of insecticides, such as DDT, in the aftermath of the Second World War, came close to eliminating the bugs from most rich world houses. But that chemical assault exerted a powerful evolutionary pressure on the insects to develop resistance to the poisons. Just as bacteria have evolved resistance to many of the antibiotics once used to kill them, modern bedbugs. Are almost invulnerable to at least some insecticides. That growing resistance has been boosted by a depleting arsenal of chemicals to hurl against them. Fumigants such as hydrogen cyanide, sulphur dioxide, and DDT itself are now regarded in most places as too toxic to use. Pyrethroids, which are the active ingredients in many commercially available insecticide sprays, are safer but become less effective every year. Exterminators are therefore turning to other avenues of attack. Diatomaceous earth, a white silicate powder, can kill the bugs by desiccating them. Polymer sprays can trap them. Certain oils can block the pores through which they breathe. Temperatures above 45 degrees Celsius are also fatal. Some pest control firms, therefore, offer to heat treat affected furniture in insulated tents, or even to roast entire rooms. But such treatments are expensive. New insecticides to which the bugs lack resistance could probably be invented, but for now at least, says Mr. Bose, the market does not exist to justify much corporate research. And since the bugs do not spread disease, public health bodies have more pressing priorities. If bed bugs continue to spread, though, those incentives could start to shift. If you enjoyed that piece from our science and technology section, check out our Babbage podcast, which takes a deep dive into one big science and tech story every week. Babbage is part of our suite of award-winning weekly podcasts, along with Money Talks, Checks and Balance on America, and Drum Tower on China. But to continue listening to those shows, you'll need to sign up to Economist Podcast Plus, unless you already subscribe to The Economist. Subscribers will also be able to enjoy our exciting special series, such as Boss Class on how to be a better manager, which starts tomorrow. As a reminder, if you join us today, you can get your subscription for half price at just two dollars, two pounds, or two euros a month. Just go to the link in the show notes or Google Economist Podcasts to sign up. Thanks for listening to Editor's Picks. I'm Emma Hogan, and in London, this is The Economist. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to eighty-nine percent off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.